0: I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my my own mind and in the midst of tears. Those are the opening lines of Francis Thompson's poem called The Hound of Heaven. And It describes God's pursuit of him in the midst of all of his reckless choices in life. God hounds him. His footsteps are, are pounding after him in this in this poem. Thompson, uh, who lived in the late 1800s, into the early 1900s, died in 1907. Um, his life was a story of, of life on the streets in London. He had gone to London to, to be a writer, um, and then became addicted to opium, and was on the streets often, and he ran from God. He writes this poem to talk about how God never ceased to seek after him. One writer was commenting on the meaning of the poem, he says this, As the hound follows the hare, a rabbit, you who don't know what a hare is, maybe, uh, never ceasing in it its running, ever drawing nearer in the chase, with unhurried and unperturbed <coughs> pace, so does God follow the fleeing soul by his divine grace. And though in sin or in human love, away from God, it seeks to hide itself, divine grace follows after, unwearyingly follows our ever after till the soul feels its pressure forcing it to turn to him alone in that never ending issue. As we open the book of Jonah we meet a reluctant prophet. Uh, a prophet who was called to an inconvenient task that was focused on a people that he really could care less about. We see a prophet who ran from God and a God who chased him down who refused to let him go who hounded him. In the book of Jonah, and in chapter 1 in particular, we get a glimpse into two subjects that we often think we understand, but the more we look at them, we realize that we all need to grow in them, and it's our under- the understanding of the human heart, our hearts, and our understanding of the character of God himself. And so Jonah is us. He is us in all of our foolishness, in all of our anger, in all of our reluctance, in all of our hard-heartedness. And the God who pursues him in this book and instructs him is our God as well. So as we study this book, in this passage in particular, my, my prayer is that God would open our eyes to how much like Jonah we are, but also how amazing our God is. Uh, I, I want us to, to see how he redeems foolish and rebellious sinners like Jonah, and like you, like me. And I want us this morning, that the main idea that we want to get is that God relentlessly and mercifully pursues sinners. God relentlessly never gives up and mercifully pursues sinners. And when I say sinners, I mean you and I mean me. That's who we're talking about. God relentlessly and mercifully pursues us, even when we foolishly turn away from Him. As we think about this idea, we'll consider the human heart and we'll consider the character of God... And we'll see, as we've said before, I think it's Tim Keller who said it first, or at least who I heard first say it, that we are more sinful than we ever imagined and more loved than we ever dreamed. So I invite you to hear the story of the prophet of Jonah, maybe with with uh, fresh ears, for the, like it's for the first time. And as we do that, that God will reveal our hearts and reveal us to the earth. So let's read Jonah chapter 1. It begins... Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and from the ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo, cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down, and was fast asleep. The captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us, on whose account this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea, and the dry land. with this great tempest. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called up to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish in this man's life, and lay on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from the Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days. In verse 1, we meet the two main characters in the book of Jonah. They are the Lord... L-O-R-D, Yahweh, God himself, and Jonah, a prophet, one who speaks for God. The rest of the book then focuses mainly on the relationship between Jonah and God. So this is more of a story, this is more than a story about Jonah and the whale, which is what we often refer to it as. In fact, the fish only shows up three times, three verses. Rather, this is a story about the anger and the prejudice and the selfishness that arise in the human heart, and it's about God's merciful, patient, forgiving, compassionate heart that forces us in the end to ask the question, do we share God's heart of compassion for all people? Now, we don't know if Jonah wrote this book or not, but given that a lot of the information bears the marks of a personal, private experience, he had to be behind it in some sense, We know that Jonah's a prophet, because here the word of the Lord comes to him, but we also see Jonah functioning as a prophet in 2 Kings 14. You might want to put your finger in Jonah and turn over to 2 Kings 14. This passage takes place uh, in the divided kingdom, so this would be the time after the great kings David and Solomon, uh, when the kingdom of Israel had been separated into the northern and the southern kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. It's a time in Israel's history that was marked by rebellion against God, by judgment from God. And in the northern kingdom, in Israel, the rebellion was especially bad. There were no uh, good kings. There was no Josiah, which is kind of a highlight um, of the southern kingdom. Here in the northern kingdom, there's nothing like that. Rather, all of the kings who reigned were considered evil and rebellious against God. And instead, of this northern kingdom that Jonah seems to have first gone, to speak a message of mercy from God on behalf of those who were in rebellion against Him on behalf of Israel. So look at 2 Kings 14, and I just want to read briefly verses 23 through 27. It says, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned forty-one years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, he restored the border of Israel from labo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hephel. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Jehosh. A lot we can say about these verses, but I just want to simply highlight that what they speak to primarily is the mercy of God on his sinful people. God has great mercy on his people in the midst of rebellion. God shows kindness to them. Their borders are expanded is what we read in verse... 25 according to a prophecy that Jonah had brought. And, and the blessing comes about, this great blessing towards evil, rebellious Israel comes about through the hand of Jeroboam, who was evil in the sight of the Lord. God blesses Israel, who was rebelling, with a king who was rebelling, and does good for them. And assuming that Jonah gave this message and then saw it come to pass, we can, we can say that Jonah knew firsthand God's great mercy towards wicked people, towards him, his fellow Israelites. And so here Jonah is, in, in back in, in the book of Jonah, Jonah is given another message that could result in mercy. However, this message is not for simple Israel, it is for Nineveh. Nineveh, a city filled with Assyrians, who were Israel's great enemy at that time. And God, the Lord Almighty, he calls to Jonah and he tells him, he says, rise up, Jonah, get up, arise, and go to Nineveh. Why? Because he says it's a great city and their evil has come up before me. So a large number of people are sinning grievously against God and God is concerned about it. He's going to deal with it in some way and he wants to use Jonah to deal with their sin. Notice in passing this that God sees the evil of the world, recognizes it, sees it, and he's going to do something about it, and he very often uses people to bring a message to these places. And here he wants to use Jonah, but Jonah is not interested. Jonah may be a prophet, but we see right away that he's not a very good prophet. He does the exact opposite of what God told him to do. Many times we see Jonah painted as a man of God who kind of makes some mistakes, but sort of comes around in the end, but it, the book of Jonah doesn't seem to, to say that. The book is named after him, but that doesn't mean Jonah the hero of the story, or that much of anything that he does is worthy of emulation. In fact, sometimes the best application for the book of Jonah is, don't be like Jonah. Just don't do what he does. So, notice first, thing we're thinking about, remember, about the human heart, about Jonah's heart, and how it reveals our own hearts. And as we think about the human heart, the first thing we see is the foolishness of fleeing God. The foolishness of fleeing God. So God calls to Jonah and tells him what to do, and what is Jonah's response? He flees. Why does he flee? We'll see this more in chapter 4, and so I won't steal too much from there, but ultimately it's because Jonah hates Nineveh. And he hates all of the people there who are Assyrians. And he assumes, he knows, if he comes and he brings God's message to them, there's the possibility that they might turn and repent. And he knows that if they turn and repent, that God will have mercy on them. And he wants nothing to do with that. He wants them to do that. And so, instead of bringing them a message of mercy, he just runs away. Instead of going northeast, which would have taken him towards Nineveh, he goes southwest. And he lands in a town that's on the Mediterranean Sea called Joppa, where he gets in a boat that's <coughs> gone for Tarshish. And Tarshish may have been as far away as modern-day Spain. So he's going far. If you look at the text, you can see how deliberate this fleeing is. It's verse, verse 3 shows it. So, so he, he goes down, he, he arrives, he, he flees to Tarshish, he goes down to Joppa. He finds a boat, searches it out. He pays to get on this boat. He gets down into it so that he can go to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. It, it's so deliberate. Tarshish, you notice, it's said three times in that one verse. Where was he supposed to go? Nineveh. Where does he go? He goes to Tarshish. 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 It's so he emphasized he's not going where he's supposed to go. And slowly we're also watching him go down. He's going down further and further, and further. And he's going to keep going down even further. What's he fleeing? Well, he's fleeing Nineveh. He doesn't want to do what that says. But let me just give you three sort of interconnected thoughts about what Jonah is fleeing from. Um, so we're seeing the foolishness of fleeing. What is Jonah, Jonah fleeing from? He's fleeing the privilege of proclaiming God's word. First of all, he's fleeing the privilege of proclaiming God's word. So, so Jonah the prophet, He is a man called to speak to others of the judgment of God that is coming, but the mercy that is offered towards those who repent. He's running from this honor and this privilege of proclaiming God's word. He doesn't want to do that. The second thing he's fleeing from is he's fleeing from the presence of God. That's repeated in in verse 3. He's fleeing the presence of God. It it sort of bookends that whole verse. He flees to to, to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and then at the end, away from the presence of the Lord. If you read the Old Testament, what Israel always longed for was for the presence of the Lord. It's what Moses begs for in Exodus 32. The whole book of Exodus climaxes in chapter 40 when the presence of the Lord descends on the tabernacle. The presence of the Lord is symbolized in in the temple, and especially in the Holy of Holies, the place where God was supposed to to be met, and where Solomon prayed, and the people had seen God's glory again, come and descend into the temple. Jonah is fleeing. He's fleeing Israel. He's, He's fleeing the land of God's promise. He's fleeing the temple, this place of God's presence. And tied closely to this idea that he's fleeing the presence of God is that he's fleeing the God who sees all. He's fleeing the presence of God. Specifically, he's fleeing the God who sees everything. Yes, God dwelt in this temple, but even Solomon said at the dedication of the temple in Second Chronicles 6.18, he says, But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven, and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Even today, people often attach some sort of special significance to a church building, assuming that somehow it's more holy. You sin in a church building, that's even worse than sitting outside of a church building. And, and we want to have respect um, for this place where God's people gather, but ultimately the earth is in the Lord's and the moment thereof, and all sin is against God, and he is everywhere. That's why we read Psalm 139 this morning. We read, we read these words. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, certainly applicable to Jonah there, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me. And the light about me be as night. Even the darkness is not dark. The night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light How foolish Jonah is. Isn't he? I'm going to run from God. Reminds me of a couple of other people. Adam and Eve. Trying to hide from God in the garden. Isn't this what sin is though? Sin is a fleeing from God's presence. And sin is always foolishness. When we, we sin, we think, my way is better than than God's way. We stupidly buy into some idea that if we do the opposite of what God says, it's going to bring us more joy or satisfaction than submitting to and doing what God has clearly told us to do. John 3 talks about the light, and, and it shows it that, that we run from the light, because in our pride and in our self-righteousness, the light exposes all of that, and we don't we don't want it, so we turn from the light. When we sin like Jonah, we can keep going down, down, further and further, and we keep trying to run farther and farther from God's presence. When we're running, we're running away from from all the joy of following God, of, of, of being in His presence. We're, we're running from the privilege of of knowing His Word and proclaiming it to others. So how about us? How do we flee from God? Do we run from the privilege of proclaiming God's message of repentance and mercy? Are we we chasing after our own plans and our own desires so hard that God's message of repentance and forgiveness is never on our lips? Do we miss opportunities to speak truth to others? Maybe non-believers, but maybe our our, our spouse or our children or our friends or our family. Because we're, we're too preoccupied with our own desires, or we're angry, or we have prejudices, and we miss this privilege of speaking truth. <coughs> Maybe we're running from God's presence. Think that we can hide our sin from Him. Do you think that because no one else knows your secret sins, that God doesn't know them either? <coughs> How foolish that is, to think that we can hide something from God? How far down will we go before we see how foolish it is to run from God's prayer. Because if we run long enough, and if we go down far enough, we become numb to our own foolishness. That's the second thing I want us to see, is the callousness that comes with sin. So the foolishness of fleeing God, but now, as we look at our own hearts, the callousness that comes with sin. Callousness, hardness, numbness. Jonah's running, and in verse 4, God Curls, he throws a great wind upon the sea. Which should have been an immediate wake up call to John. That's something's going on here. I can remember when Andrew and I were still dating, and we were driving in a snowstorm in Indiana. And we should not have been driving in a snowstorm. It was like what we saw here in Belwares. And uh, we were driving, and uh, as we were driving, all of a sudden our car just spun out. 180 you know facing direction. Now that should have been a warning sign. Turn around. Don't get off the road. So we didn't listen. And we kept going straight. And then it happened. Same thing happened again. We pulled a 180. I said, you know what? Maybe this is the thing. And so we kept going. We, we listened to the warning. But foolishly and callously, Jonah doesn't even notice the storm. Where's he at? He's asleep. He's in the bottom of the boat. Asleep. He has sunk down even further. He's not just physically low, but we see how morally and spiritually low he has sunk when we think about Jonah, the prophet of God, in comparison to the pagan sailors that he traveled with. Of course, sailors throughout history have never been people that, you know, you want to hold up to your children, and you, know, you want to be like sailors, because they're moral and pure and holy. And I, I think the same would have been true in, in Jonah's day, which is the surprise of this text. We should be surprised that, the sailors are more worthy of emulation than the prophet is. They pray, and, and they they call on, on Jonah to pray. What's Jonah doing? Sleeping and refusing to pray. The captain of the ship is concerned about the lives of his men. He's concerned about Jonah's life. But Jonah doesn't care anything about his ship In fact, he doesn't even care about his own life. The sailors see that that Jonah's God is the one that they're looking for. They're the one that they should pray to. But Jonah never prays. The whole chapter, we see it in, in verse 6. The, the captain comes, Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us, and we may not perish. No response. Jonah does not pray. The, these sailors, they have mercy on Jonah when they find out, here's the solution. Throw me into the water. What do they do? They row harder. Maybe we can save this guy. They, they won't throw him into the sea. But Jonah, why is he fleeing? Because he has no mercy. No mercy on Nineveh. Doesn't care about him one day. These men, they fear God in the end. Jonah, he says in here, he functions. But he's just absurd. He doesn't fear God. Have you ever been told by a non-Christian that you're not acting like a Christian? I can remember times in high school when my friends would say, you know, if I acted a certain way or said certain things, they'd be surprised. They knew that I claimed to follow Christ. And and when I didn't act in a way that reflected Christ, even they, not Christians, would say to me, Andy, you shouldn't say that. You shouldn't act that way. That's sobering, isn't it? But such is what happens to Jonah. Jonah is so callous here that it seems actually though that he would rather die. He would rather die than call out to God for mercy. He, 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 he wants them to throw him into the sea. Remember, we know what's going to happen in verse 17, the fish thing, right? Does Jonah have any knowledge of that? No. He's willing to be thrown in these churning waters rather than to throw himself on God's mercy. They ask him this question, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down from us? What's Jonah's option? He could say, you know what, I'm going to repent. What you can do is turn around go back to Joppa. I need to go to Nineveh. I think the storm stops at that moment. But Jonah refuses to break. He refuses to repent. He refuses to turn back. And he says, I would rather die than do what God wants. There are hints here, too, of the fact that the prejudices that are stirring in Jonah's heart are behind some of this. He's unwilling to repent. It, it, it's rooted in the fact that he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. So his callousness is not simply towards God's heart of pursuing him, but it's, he's also callous towards his fellow human beings in Nineveh. And He says, "I would rather die than give the Assyrians a chance to attack Nineveh." No Look at Jonah. Look deep at Jonah. His callousness, his foolishness, the darkness of his heart. <laughs> And then as you're looking at Jonah, let Jonah sort of step aside, and let God's word be a mirror to reveal your talents, your tools, my tools, the way that we run from God in much the same way. And if you don't see it, then pray those words of Psalm 139, search me, oh God, know my heart, reveal to me, know it. So having looked at Jonah, and now looked at our own hearts, let's let's now turn our gaze toward God. Let's look up. Because the chapter, it reveals our foolishness, it reveals our callousness, but it also reveals something about the character of God. And there is hope. There's hope for Jonah, there's hope for you, there's hope for me because of who God is. So the first thing that we see is the relentlessness of God's pursuit. The relentlessness of God's pursuit. Jonah tries to flee God's presence. But God refuses to let that happen. Jonah thinks he's in control. But we see that God is the one who's orchestrating and ordering all of the chaos that is surrounding this rebellious prophet. This is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God, meaning God's intimate and intricate control of everything that happens in this world, including the intimate details of Jonah's life and of our lives. He is in control. We, we saw in verse 4 that he's the one that hurls the storm onto the waters. But then, as you read through, it's like he's stirring it up. He keeps churning these waters. He makes it worse and worse. He does not relent. And yet, the boat never does sink. He's in control of that too. He's, he's holding this boat together. He's not going to let it get to land. He's also not going to let it be destroyed. And when the sailors cast lots... God, who is sovereign over all things, ordains that Jonah gets the short straw. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but in every decision. Even the fish, in verse 17, that, that swims up and swallows Jonah, shows that God is in control. He is pursuing Jonah.
1: He could have left him to
0: die, but he appoints this great fish and puts Jonah in its stomach. Why? Because God's not done with Jonah yet. He's pursuing him with and for us, as much as we seek to flee from God's presence, he continues to pursue us. He sends storms, he sends trials that are meant to call us back to himself. He won't let us sleep at the bottom of the boat, but he sends unlikely messengers that shake us away and say, Call on your God. I'm reminded of John Bunyan. We've been thinking in, about our story about permanent progress, and God used, as their promised folder, a woman of ill repute. Probably a prostitute to awaken Bunyan to his sin and to the need of a Savior. She scolded Bunyan in public because of his language. And it sent him into a spiral that lasted for about eighteen months to the point that he finally came to faith in Christ. So what about us? What what are the circumstances, the trials, the pain, the storms that God hurls into our lives with the goal of turning us back to Him? How about this? Are there people that are speaking truth to you? Maybe unlikely people. People you wouldn't expect to speak truth to you. But they are talking to you and you need to listen to them. Let's not be like Jonah. Let's not be like him, keep going deeper and deeper and deeper, but rather turn and repent. And stop and recognize that relentless pursuit of us. It can be scary to turn back. What's God gonna do? Have I sunk too far? Have I gone down too deep? If you're scared to turn back, know that we can turn and hope in God. Not because He doesn't just send storms; He doesn't just send sailors. But He sends some. He send Christ. God has pursued us so relentlessly. <coughs> Think about how much God has pursued us. He's pursued us so relentlessly that He has become us. In the incarnation. Jesus becomes human. To chase after. Jesus comes to be our. Savior. He comes to seek and to save the lost. And he becomes our savior how? By becoming our substitute. He takes our place. He dies for our sins. Like Jonah. Jesus is cast. Into the waters. Of judgment but they're not judgment for his sin, but they're the waters of judgment that are stirred up by our sin and by our rebellion. Jesus is thrown into them, and then he is swallowed up by death for three days, and he emerges victorious, bringing salvation everyone who will repent. As we think about God's relentless pursuit of sinners, think about this other part of the character of God that's so closely tied to this. And so so much a part of the book of Jonah, and it's this, the wideness of God's mercy. The wideness of God's mercy. The mercy of God is on display throughout the whole book of Jonah, and it's shown in stark contrast to, to Jonah and his harshness and his lack of compassion. God shows mercy to everyone, including Jonah. His patience is, is on full display. He continues to pursue his children with with great mercy. He's pursuing Jonah, and he's going through throughout the book. But specifically here, he's pursuing unlikely characters, isn't he? The reaction of the sailors, again, is, is surprising. And we are amazed at their faith, but more so we should be amazed at God's mercy to them. He is, he is pursuing his prophet, and as he's pursuing his prophet, it's as if these sailors sort of get caught up in the mercy of God. <coughs> They get swept up in it, and they move from the place at the beginning of the story where they are fearing this storm to at the very end there in verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They feared the storm, and now they fear God. Reverentially, they respect, they understand who He is. What a scene this chapter closes with. Verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The sailors, either on the beach where they landed eventually, or there even on the deck of their ship, offer a sacrifice to God. And where's the prophet? He's in the belly of a fish. as the sailors are worshiping God. What a wonderful scene. It should keep us from from pridefully looking down on the, the faith of others. Um, I don't know what the sailor's faith looked like, but it was it was pretty raw, whatever it was. But they're worshiping God. They fear him much more than Jonah does. That's obvious. To should give us a boldness to proclaim the gospel to everyone. The whiteness of God's mercy anyone can be saved. God's mercy can save anyone. That's the message that Jonah should have spoken to the sailors, but he totally missed that opportunity. Well, let's not be like Jonah. You know when friends and neighbors and co-workers, they face storms, they face difficulty, they're filled with fear, they're calling out to their gods, whatever their gods might be, and they might come to you and say, "Will you call out to your God for me. Who is your God? And you know what we can say? We can say, my God is the one who controls the wind and the waves. My God is the God of the land and the dry ground. He can place you my God pursues people he's pursuing you now he pursued you all the way to the point of becoming a human being dying so that he could save you that's message that we have to give that's a message of mercy that we have received just like Jonah had received that we freely give it we end chapter 1 not with Jonah's death but with Jonah in the stomach of a fish And we don't really know what's going to happen. Assume you don't know what's going to happen, okay. We don't know what's going to happen, but it's obvious that that God is not done with Jonah yet. God's got something else that he's going to teach Jonah. He is pursuing him. We'll hear more from him next week, but what do we walk away with today? Well, we've seen that the foolishness of sin that runs from the presence of God. We've seen God's, God's merciful pursuit of us. You know, we read this story and you want to call out to Jonah. You want to say, jonah stop! Stop. Turn. Stop going down. This is not good. Run to God instead. But that's the message that we need to hear so often. This week as we get drawn into the sin and the places where we're just going deeper and deeper, we need to hear this this story and say, I'm Jonah. I'm just going turn. Repent. Sin is misery. Jesus is his life, and he invites and he sends this offer of life to, to everyone. To sailors, to Assyrians, to sinners of all kinds, including Jonah. God is pursuing us. He's going to pursue us this week. He's going to pursue us through storms and difficulties. He's going to pursue us through unlikely messengers. He's going to pursue us through his son. And Jonah, one we see that God relentlessly and mercifully pursues sinners. But we are we, we are more sinful than we ever thought. But we're also more loved than we ever thought. We are foolish. We are callous. We are running from the presence of God. But, but God is chasing us. He is, as Francis Thompson, poem calls him, he is the hound of heaven. Thompson's poem, it ends with these lines. He stops running from God. And, and God speaks at the end of the poem, and this is what God says. Whom wilt thou find to love, ignoble thee? Save me. Save only me. All which I took from thee, I did but take, not for thy arms, but just that thou mightest seek it in my arms. All which thy child's mistake fancies is lost, I have stored for thee at home. Rise, clasp my hand, and Come. So this picture almost of God reaching out his hand. And then Thompson asks, Holt by me that football. So the, the, the hound has stopped chasing him. Hope by me that football. Is my gloom after all, the, the shade of his hand, outstretched, unceasing? And then God says, Ah, fondest, blindest, weakest, I am he who thou seekest. Thou dravest love from thee, who dravest from when we run from God, we're seeking something. We're seeking something to, to satisfy us, something to, to, to fulfill us. But the reality that we see in Jonah is if, if we would just stop, if we would stop running from God, and we would turn, we would find that the, that the thing that we are seeking, that we truly desire, is the God who is seeking after us. God is relentless in his pursuit of us. We're more sinful than we could in ever thought, but through Christ for more love than we can ever be.